And I have to confess that Philippians is one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. And it's probably, you know, interesting for me to say that because I've been meditating on this particular book. And maybe the next book I dive into, I'll say that's my favorite. But really, this book has stood the test of time in my heart to encourage me and to cause my heart to rise and worship to the Lord as I resonate with Paul's heart. Paul's heart in the book of Philippians is on his sleeve, as the expression goes, because he is just filled with Christian joy. And he wants that Christian joy to influence the flock that he loves dearly. And we're probably not supposed to evaluate how much he loved the church at Philippi more than maybe others, but his transparency and his connection with this group of people, it just seems to be more than with other churches. I mean, there just isn't conflict that's really present there. There's no attack on Paul from the church, and there's this free-flowing friendship in the gospel that you sense as you read the book of Philippians. It's one of my favorites, and I'm glad to sort of dive into this book now. One of the reasons why I chose to go into Philippians as we started the fall is I was looking for a book that would encourage my own heart and encourage your hearts as Christians. For you to have what everybody really wants, which is joy in the Lord. Joy is such a precious part of the Christian life. It is the fruit of a relationship with the Lord that whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you want it. You want joy. And I got to say this, to be a real witness for Jesus Christ, to be someone that other people look at and say, I want what he has or what she has, you have to have Christian joy. Without joy, you have minimal to no witness for Jesus Christ at all. At least your testimony is counterintuitive to what you're offering. It's hard for you to come up to somebody and say, look, I want you to have the hope that's within me when they don't see any hope within you, right? So joy is evangelism. You say, I don't know how to evangelize. Well, go through something really hard, which those things come to us, right? We don't set ourselves up for trials, but they come. Go through things that are really hard and have a joy in the Lord that's sustained by the Lord that is contra to your circumstances. Not superficial joy, but a joy that's a deep-seated confidence in the Lord where your heart is just lifted and you're sort of transcending the tough, difficult circumstances. And people see that and they go, man, I want what you have. If, if that's what it means to know Jesus, then I want to know Jesus. That's joy, and that's one of the reasons we need to talk about this from this book of the Bible. One of the most compelling witnesses in my life as a teenager was to watch my older brother exude a supernatural joy that he had found as a 16-year-old. It was a seed that darted into my heart where I thought, wow, he's got something that I don't have that is authentic and real and I need. And so years later, I came to faith in Christ and the number one fruit experience that I remember was the fruit of joy that I had for the first time. Tried everything else out in the world, nothing compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. That's Philippians. That's Philippians, it gives what, what people have, have translated these words to say. It gives the secret of being content 
Do you remember that concept in Philippians 4? That is the joy of the Lord that was Paul's strength. Joy. Someone asked the question during our Q&A time this summer. Remember I did that Q&A topical series. Someone asked, can you define depression? Is it, is it psychological? Is it metabolic? Is it physical? Is it a spiritual issue? Can you define it, describe it, and tell me how to help people get out of depression? That's a question probably that's represented amongst all of us to varying degrees. And I just have decided to take six months to answer that particular question from the book of Philippians. That's because this is a book chocked full with the word joy and the word rejoice, which come from the same root word. Paul, in chapter 1, examples joy to the flock. He, he speaks in terms of his joy for the Lord, in the Lord, in the gospel. And then in chapter 4, he does the same thing at the end of this letter, this epistle that he wrote from his heart to the flock. And then in the middle, you find exhortation after exhortation for the church to rejoice. So he models it, and he calls the church to do it, to live it, to be it in the Lord. Some people sort of have kind of made a superficial theme out of the book of Philippians, calling it the epistle of joy. I don't have a huge problem with that unless you understand this book as just simply a sort of pipe pop psychological book about how to be self-helped, you know, enjoy. That's not what this is, but it is truly filled with a joy-filled Christian testimony. But there are themes that sort of drive the joy. But let's first of all survey this book in terms of the joy that is here, Christian joy or the call to rejoice look at verse and you see them listed here chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 he Paul's praying for the church he says I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy filled with joy verse 18 what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Context here is you have some enemies that are out there who are taunting Paul but preaching the true gospel nevertheless. And because Paul knows it's not a heretical gospel but the true gospel, he's going, hey, I rejoice in that. I'm filled with joy. And then verse 25 of chapter 1, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He's saying, look, I'm in a Roman prison. I'm probably going to have my, my head cut off unless I'm released. It's going to go one way or the other. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. But, but if I'm supposed to stay here, I'm kind of hard pressed between two options here. And if I'm supposed to stay here, I rejoice because I want to see joy progress in your Christian life. Joy. Verse 2 of chapter 2, look at this. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Saying, look, if you'll just be unified in the gospel, that will complete my joy. If you'll serve each other and find unity in the Lord, that will fill my heart with joy. Verse 17, 17 and 18. 
of chapter 2. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Context here. This is all preview of things to come. He's saying, look, I, I'm going to probably be taken to the chopping block and, and my head will be severed from my body and I will be poured out like a, a drink offering. And even if that's my circumstances, I'm finding joy and I'm calling you church to rejoice with me in it because it's for the sake of the gospel. Verses 28 and 29 of this chapter, he says, I am the more eager to send him, meaning Epaphroditus, who had come to visit Paul in Roman imprisonment. He's saying, I'm eager to send him back, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He's willing to release his company. His brother who's come to him in prison, I release him back because he's going to encourage you with his testimony. I'm anxious for that to happen. He's filled with joy. Such a contra contrastive circumstance that Paul finds himself in to be expressing this kind of joy. Think about it. Hey, I'm going to go to prison um, and be on death row. And that's the happiest place for me to be because he knew he was at the center of God's will. He's filled with joy. Where do we find joy? We find joy in a Roman prison. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Are these familiar verses to you? These are some of the most oft-quoted verses from the New Testament. This is what people live on are these verses. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And he goes on and he's speaking about how the church had re-engaged with Paul and had given Money to Paul to sustain him even through some of the darkest times of his life. Filled with joy. Four times the word is used, joy, and then nine times the word is used as rejoice. He wanted to influence this church with joy. And guess what? Paul, if you open your hearts, will influence you to gain joy in your life. Even as a person who is in glory now, who under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit wrote a letter that was probably dictated to a secretary, maybe Epaphroditus writing it down as, as Paul maybe chained to a guard was sort of moving around his mind's eye on this flock. He wanted that flock to have his joy. And that was his ministry by remote control to, to and through Epaphroditus to the church. He, he wanted to, the church to be captivated with joy. And that same ministry by the Holy Spirit will come through the writing of Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to your heart to lift out of depression, out of negativity, out of anxiety, out of fear, out of hopelessness. Because there is the rare jewel of Christian contentment found in this book and it is the jewel of joy. It is. Now, the big idea here is simply this. 
Christian joy is the fruit of a single mindset. That's why this book is more than just pop psychology. It's more than just superficiality, talking about being happy. This is a call to Christian health where you, like Paul, are called to focus on Christ. A single mindset where you're focused on Christ and the gospel. And if you focus on Christ, where Christ is going, this one thing I do, I want to know Christ. If that's your focus, then the fruit of that will be joy. That's how this book works. It all starts with the mind focused solely on Christ. Let me expand it just one concentric circle out. You're focused on Christ and you want others to know Christ. And that's what you're consumed with. And if you do that, the fruit of that is joy. Sound very simple to you? Well, it really is a simple concept that's very, very hard to live. It takes work. You have to grow in grace. You have to grow to get to this kind of single-mindedness. Remember Paul at the end of 2 Corinthians said, I've got this thorn in the flesh, whether it was physical or actually people demonically in charge coming after him, accusing him of being a false apostle. He says, man, this thorn in the flesh, it's a messenger of Satan. It's dogging me. It's like this spear in my side. That's the idea of a thorn there, not a little prick. This is like a nagging, awful, debilitating circumstance and he prayed and prayed and prayed and worked through that with the Lord and ultimately said well I guess that circumstance isn't going to change but your grace is sufficient your power is perfected in me in my weakness he had joy but he had to work to get there he had to work to not be anxious he had to work to have the joy of the Lord. And this book is a call to work and it comes through the mind. Look at the Christian mindset. These are some of the most famous verses of the New Testament. Not just the joy ones, but the ones that center on the Christian mind. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. You've heard this before. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see the soul mindset in that single Focused, single, purposed. For verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's a single-mindedness. Christ, Christ is all. It delivers you for joy. Verse 27 Look at this of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, in equal weight with the gospel is the idea, so that whether I come to you, whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I said one mind, one focus, one direction, Christ and you want others to know Christ. Single-mindedness. Chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same, say it with me, mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. You see that? If you go to the next verse, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... 
which in the New American Standard Version, it's translated, in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. Christianity is a spirituality that begins in the mind. It's about thinking. It's about thinking rightly. When we think wrongly, when we think away from God, away from Christ, when we focus like Peter did on the wind and the waves, instead of focusing on Christ as you walk out on the water, things fall apart. You begin to drown. You begin to despair. You begin to spiral. And this is a call to think Christ. Christ first. Christ is all. And you want others to be captivated by that single focus on Christ. Let's move to verse 5. Where does this mindset come from? It comes from Jesus himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, here's another mind word, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The gospel, the good news story about Jesus coming, began with a decision of Jesus's in heaven to make himself a slave down here on earth. He decided to do that. True Christianity is making a decision that's like Christ to be a servant. It begins in the mind. A lot of people think that Christianity is first and foremost an experience, a feeling. They want the life support system of programs and relationships and religion to buoy them up and get them through. But Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this begins and ends with a mindset on Christ. And then the joy and the experience flows out of that. The fruit of joy comes from a single-mindedness as a Christian. Are you seeing this? It's all through this book of the Bible, and it's really all through Scripture. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. For they all seek, this is a mental word, they seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. People who are anti-Christ, people who are false teachers, their thinking is self-interest. Their thinking is to fill their bellies with wrong things and with worldliness instead of thinking Christ Well, just to move on to chapter 3, look at verses 3 and 4. Though I myself, this is Paul's testimony, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
He's going, look, I, I'm not a perfect guy. I battle with the temptations of pride and ego. And if anybody, this is him just laying his heart open. If anybody has a temptation to brag about accomplishments, guess what? I graduated at the top of my class. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I nailed it, and I want to think about that instead of Christ. And I'm, I'm tempted to think about my pedigree instead of Christ. And I, I need to count that or think differently about my pedigree and count that as loss as dung as refuse as nothing compared to knowing Christ it's chapter 3 look at verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death he wants to know Jesus Christ set your heart my friends to know Jesus because if you're lacking joy there's a reason. It begins with wanting to know Christ. Christ is all. Well, further down, verse 13, brothers, I do not, here's a mind word, consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting, that's mental, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are these familiar verses to you? I'm trying to cast them in two categories. One, the category of the fruit of joy, and the others in the category of the way to joy, the vehicle for joy, the means for joy, which is through a mindset on Christ. And following that, for others to know Christ. That's the mindset. Chapter 4. Well, verse 20 of chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. He was always thinking about his citizenship being higher than the Roman Empire. Chapter 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all, here's the mind, it surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Very familiar text. It's centering on our thinking, our mind. And then verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, here it is, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Don't think about this, think about this. And really the this is Christ. You see that? It's a thinking spirituality. It begins with the mind. And the joy flows out of that. The relationship flows out of that. I'm not talking about a dead academic scholarship religion. I'm talking about a fixation on the master as he is revealed in the scripture. The word of God reveals to us the word, which is Christ. John 1. Where are we? Verse 11. 
He's at the end and he's talking about how he's finding his learned sufficiency in Christ. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. That's a thinking idea. I've, I've learned this. I know how to be in prison. I know how to be beaten as a Christian. I know how to do that spiritually. And I know how to abound. I know how to have a bank account. I know how to have my means be being met. I know how it is not to be under the stress and pressure of money. I know how to know Christ through that too. For I have learned, here's a thinking idea, I've learned in whatever situation to be content, to be filled up with Christ is what that means. I know how to be brought low, verse 12, and I know how to abound. And every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me you've heard these verses we're going to take some time and work through this idea of Christian joy that comes from a single mindset and as we do that we need to understand that this is a call for you to engage I'm inviting you to engage the gift that you have being people who have minds thinkers be open to thinking to using this organ up here it's a precious precious gift to us there's no supercomputer that can multitask in nanoseconds trillions of activities that can compare to the brain god has given you a brain that has the total possible pathways through the brain that exceed 10 to the 80th power 10 billion cells or neurons that connect with tens of thousands of tentacles connecting to neighboring cells that are functioning on high octane and a brain that can do something that no supercomputer or no computer network system around the world can do and that is you can connect with Christ. I read in a book that sort of has grabbed my attention, Disciplines of a Godly Young Man. It's something that my son, who's 11, and I are working through. It's a, it's a great book to talk about hearts and lives with your young son. And it's written by Kent Hughes, and he says this about the mind. He says, the human brain does not miss a thing. It is capable of giving and receiving the subtlest input from imagining a universe in which time bends to creating a polyphonic texture of a Bach fugue or transmitting and receiving a message from God himself. Feats no computer will ever accomplish. The amazing potential of the human mind reaches its apex in the possibility of possessing the very mind of Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you realize what we have in Christ? I was uh, sitting with my daughter Riley at the Performing Arts Center last night downtown. Some of you were there. It was a concert um, by the An Anchorage Symphony. Also, they were accompanied by um, the Harlem Stringed Quartet. And these instrumentalists were amazing. My heart was 
sailing and soaring as the music, music was symphonically choreographed in perfect timing and beauty and majesty, all being conducted by this masterful, very interesting conductor. And I was watching him and just thinking about the human mind and the capacity to be able to reflect upon music and play an instrument and breathe into an instrument or be precise with a bow and in nanoseconds synchronized through a conductor with an orchestra. It was masterful. It was joy-filled. It was through the mind. And in the body of Christ, you as a symphony member are called to be part of the concert that God is calling our church to be part of, where you focus in your single focusness on the conductor who is Christ and you play your musical instrument or your spiritual gift for the glory of God synchronized in symphonic unity for the pleasure and glory of the master. This is also called by Paul, by the way, something that I believe is the theme that sort of captures everything we've been talking about so far about the book of Philippians. And it's put this way. Verse 5 of chapter 1, he said he's making, you know, mention of them by prayer with joy. In verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is also translated as a word that we use in a more common sense in the church. It's the word fellowship or koinonia. It's a lot deeper than saying, hey, we had some fellowship over some fried chicken that was good. I, this is, it supersedes that. This is a, a very important concept that sort of wraps a bow around these four chapters. It's found in chapter one, and then he goes to it at the end in chapter four. It's fellowship in the gospel. The word fellowship uh, has been used historically, and I think uh, it would relate to the concept here as a business term. It's the idea of coming into fellowship or partnership in a business venture. It's where you say, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to put my assets in this. I'm going to put my life's skill and work in this venture in a partnership with a group of people. And we are going in fellowship with each other in a shared vision to reach a shared single goal. It's partnership or fellowship together and Paul is saying listen church you got it you've understood the mission and you've come into fellowship with me in the gospel we get it we have a focus on Christ and we are joy-filled in our fellowship of the gospel now another sort of way that I've tried to get my mind around the word fellowship is by reading a genre that I don't typically read and that is fiction and mythical fiction and I read um, the first part of the book that was written by J.R.R. Tolkien called The Lord of the Rings. I read the first section which is also called book one, The Fellowship of the Ring, right? Some of you know this, some of you have seen the movies and, uh, and I actually downloaded that first book onto my phone and read through it in preparation for this. Kent Hughes, the guy I just quoted from this book, made that comparison for me, saying, listen, the idea of being in fellowship is having a shared vision similarly to that story. If you're familiar with it, you have a guy that's a hobbit named Frodo, uh, an imaginary character that, you know, is, is given this possession, this ring, and he 
goes in concert with other friends and hobbits and beings to bring this ring, which is representing temptation and really sin in the world. And he's trying to bring this to its doom at the mountain that's volcanic called Mordor, where, where it's to be dropped in. It's a very difficult journey and a very difficult mission that this group is called to carry out together in soul vision with single purpose together almost to the death. No matter what, we're going to fight to get this mission to completion. And the story of the Lord of the Rings is a story of a band of people in partnership together who are loyal to each other and who will persevere to the end. If you have your take-home sheet or you can look at the screen, I want to read to you a quote that I sort of found, and it's actually a quote and probably a paraphrase that was from the books, uh, the second book, The Two Towers, but was um, part of the second movie, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And you have Frodo, and then you have his loyal best friend, Sam Gamgee, in conversation. Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. I know it's all wrong. Sam is saying, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam says that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Now, the idea here of good in this world, you know, we could sort of bring that to our own real experience in the sense of God's common grace and goodnesses that we see and enjoy. Whether you are in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom, there are many joys and pleasures that we enjoy, but there is one sole, true, authentic good in this world, and that's knowing Christ. Are you willing to join the fellowship of the gospel? I want to know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And my life is given for others to know him, that single focus that will bring for you the fruit of joy. This is what this book of the Bible has. And Paul lived it. You see it in his testimony through this book. He lived out his joy. You find joy in the cellars of a Roman prison. Okay, that's where we're finding this deposit of joy. But you also have to remember the story that led up to this testimony. And that's found 10 years earlier where Paul and Silas and his other missionary friends, Luke and Timothy, planted the church at Philippi. This church 
that 10 years later, Paul would be writing to from a Roman prison. By the way, chapters 1, verse 13, and chapter 4, 22 sort of reflect the idea that this was Paul's first imprisonment. He was put in prison three different times. This was his first imprisonment after Acts 20 when he went to Rome. He was in a position where he was going to appeal his situation and possibly um, be released. He had, was allowed to have visitors there and Chapter 1, verse 13 says that, you know, he was interacting in the gospel with the imperial guard and he's sending greetings from converts from Caesar's household. Chapter 4, verse 22. So he's in Roman imprisonment. And now I want to take us 10 years earlier to the planting of this church at Philippi. And I want to do this because Paul's testimony stands up as a background to what he's saying and communicating in Philippians chapters 1 through 4. So turn back with me to Acts chapter 15 just to get a little bit of an overview of what happened and how the church at Philippi came to be. You'll remember, you remember that Paul and Barnabas were part of the first missionary journey. Do you remember that? And they traveled around Asia, what's called Asia Minor, um, sort of from the Middle East, from the church at Jerusalem, and they won to Christ a bunch of Gentiles that became churches like the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia. I mean, they were fireball missionaries, but not without some conflict and controversy. You had the, the sort of parting of Paul and Barnabas over um, John Mark, and Paul then joined up with Silas. But in between that first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, there was something called the Jerusalem Council, and that's what Acts 15 begins to describe here. And that's where, look, you had Gentile evangelism that was taking place. Not only Jews were being saved, but now Gentiles were being saved, which was sort of the point all along. One new man in Christ. Well, the church had to figure that out because you had Gentiles who didn't want to keep certain parts of the ceremonial law that really weren't necessarily still in effect anyway. But there was a sort of, we don't want to offend the Jews and how do we, how do we make this work out as the church? So they had those discussions and they protected and clarified the gospel and they made some preferential um, statements together as to what they would do and not do now. And so you have the beginning of the second missionary journey where Paul now is separating from Barnabas and beginning a new venture with Silas in chapter 16. He picks up to go back and make a loop from Jerusalem up toward Ephesus and make a loop around Asia to strengthen and re-encourage the churches that had been planted before. That was the goal of the second missionary journey. And we'll see that the Holy Spirit interrupted this goal. Verse 5 of chapter 16. So the churches were strengthened in the faith as they increased in numbers daily. Paul and Silas, are, they're after it. They're with Timothy now in the fellowship of the gospel, going up through Asia toward the Black Sea, traveling by foot. And verse 6 says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they were beginning to be diverted west. And it says, then they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, again, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, did not allow them. 
So we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit was checking their spirits and sending them in different ways, but he was doing that, guiding them along. Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, they're right at the edge of the Aegean Sea, which is above the Mediterranean Sea. It's sort of due east by boat um, from Greece, and so they're going to travel by boat across the Aegean Sea. They're going to take kind of a three-week boat journey over to, toward Greece. This is where the church was born in Europe. That's what's happening. That's what the Holy Spirit was up to. Look at verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. That's where Philippi, the church at Philippi, was going to be born, Macedonia. Sort of Asia Minor, it's kind of in between Asia and in between Greece, on the way to Greece. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul saw a vision and took it from God and said, look, guess what? We're not just on a mission to strengthen churches. It's time to go plant some churches. It's time to go preach the gospel some more to different places. And so setting sail, verse 11, from Troas, we made a direct voyage to, to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So uh, verse 11 notes that Luke was picked up in this fellowship of missionaries. Somehow, maybe Luke was around Troas or something, but he is the one who's written the book of Acts, and he was including himself, saying, hey, we went on this boat ride over to plant this church. So this foursome headed west to Europe by boat, um, a two-day crossing to Neapolis, let me correct the three-week. It was a two-day crossing in boat and then nine miles on the Ignatian Way to Philippi. The Ignatian Way, by the way, was a very important road system that sort of was the road between Asia Minor and Greece. It became a very um, protected, militarily protected road from the Roman Empire or by the Roman Empire where Philippi became kind of an acropolis city where veterans and soldiers were to protect you know, the east from the west. So it became a very important city. Does it remind you of any cities that you know of? I mean, think of Anchorage, Alaska. The city at um, Philippi was 10,000 people, so it was kind of a small city, but a very prominently known city because it was at a certain point that would be protected by the military for strategic purposes. And I think Anchorage is a military um, city is very similar. It's a melting place. We kind of call Anchorage, you know, lost Anchorage because of the cosmopolitan population that's here with a lot of different nationalities and orientations and people here that um, take great pride and value in the military, the Air Force and Army base here. And it's a great way for us to be um, patriotic and enjoy our position as part of the United States of America in a unique spot. Philippi had the same kind of notoriety, even though it was a small town. It was a very strategic place for the gospel ministry to be born. And this was known, um, it gained notoriety over the centuries. Uh, Alexander the Great's um, father, Philip of Macedonia, he's the one who founded 
this place called Philippi in the 4th century BC. A couple centuries passed, nothing really happened, but the Roman Empire was establishing itself in the former, um, you know, Greece, and it was growing and extending itself in prominence. And so 200 years pass, and then coming up to um, 42, the year 42 BC, a, an event that happened that was very well known to capture Philippi and for it to turn from a republic to part of the Roman Empire happened with a war. And the war was between Mark Antony and Octavian, who is also known as Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. So you've got Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony versus... Brutus and Cassius. You remember who those were? Those were two of the assassins that killed Julius Caesar. And guess who won? Well, Mark Antony and Octavian won. And then Mark Antony sort of took over Egypt and the Roman Empire was taking over everywhere. And so Caesar Augustus became the first emperor of Rome and beat out Mark Antony. Guess what? The empire had struck back. Okay, anyway, you, you follow. I mean, these stories, you know, they come from somewhere, right? It was the Roman Empire that was taking over and spreading through blood and intrigue and assassinations and all kinds of political jockeying and positioning. And guess what? It's completely in contrast to the way that Christ builds his empire. Christ's empire is going to succeed and it comes from a band of disciples that are missionaries that go to strategic places and give the gospel and the kingdom advances and you have these world kingdoms that rise and fall under God's rule but his church is building and building and expanding where ultimately God wins in the end and the new heavens and the new earth are established forever and ever amen we're part of the fellowship of the gospel that's what we sign up for and that's what these missionaries signed up for is they reached three different people in philippi three different people i mean you have sort of you know the way the world takes a place over and then you have the way god takes a place over well god begins his ministry and his kingdom building measures by saving a key merchant lady named Lydia, who was a God-fearer with some other women by a river in Lystra, in the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. See that in verse 14? Verse 13 is where Paul is talking about trying to find the synagogue. His, his mission was always to go into a town, find the synagogue, find where they were talking religion, where they're talking Old Testament. And he wants to mix it up with them and say, look, everything you're learning about really from the Old Testament is about Jesus. Let me prove it to you. That's what he liked to do. But there was no synagogue because there weren't enough believing Jews in the, in the city. There weren't men stepping up. So he goes to where he might think there'd be a place of prayer by the river and finds Lydia who could have been, really, it, her name could be part of the proper name use of where she's from, a woman from Lydia, but I think her name was Lydia. But she was from an Asian background, okay? That's where she's from. It sort of tells us her region, because you have three different kinds of people from three different classes of society from three different backgrounds and histories. And first you have Lydia, 
who is strategically Asian. Look at this. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She was pre-cooked by the Holy Spirit. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Let me just stop there. Again, I got to stand on a soapbox for a second and just remind all of us that when someone is saved, it's God's work, not ours. It wasn't what the person does or what we do. It's that God opens a person's heart and then they find themselves responding in faith. God opens heart. Why won't that person get saved? Well, you got to pray, Lord, open the eyes of that person's heart by faith. Open it up. And God opens people's hearts and all of a sudden they find themselves believing. God moves first. And then after she believed, she was baptized. Let me just open up that as well. We baptized last week. I think we need to sort of soak the stage every week or, you know, at least every now and then. We need to have people stepping up to be baptized. It's true. We do because it's, it's a fruit of faith to wanting to testify and, and to say, I am on mission. I am part of this fellowship of the gospel. So I'm going to be saved. I mean, be baptized because you're saved. And after she was baptized, she was not ashamed of the gospel in her household as well. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Some speculate that as a wealthy woman, a seller of purple, the finest fabric in the land, as this entrepreneur, she was someone who had a house large enough to start the church at Philippi. Well, verse 16, and while we are out of time, do you care if I keep going? It doesn't matter what you say. Okay, verse 16, <laughs> as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Just tell you the story. Slave girl, she has no rights. She's on the low, lowest rung of the social status strata and and she was a tool in the hands of people who were using and abusing her and she was demon possessed so this is i believe and i infer from this that she was evangelized this is a story of her being evangelized where she's crying out she can't help herself because the demons when they 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 sense the kingdom of god is in a certain place they cry out that's what happened with jesus that's what happened with these apostles the demons begin to cry out and they're telling the truth, but they're demons. And so it annoys Paul, verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Even the demons are speaking this. And verse 18 says it's happening after many days, but Paul became greatly annoyed and he command, commanded in the name of Jesus these demons to come out of her. And I believe she was saved because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan's in the world, and when we have Christ, no demon can come into us, and so I believe she was saved. But then you have a third person in personality. You've got sort of someone from an Asian background in Lydia, someone from a Greek background in this slave girl, and then finally you have someone from a Roman background, middle-class person, blue-collar, middle-class worker who is a Roman guard. Paul and Timothy were accused 
by these uh, sort of businessmen using the slave girl of upsetting the area, messing things up in Philippi, turning the world upside down on its head. They were really just mad and jealous because their money scheme was gone. Got him in trouble with the magistrates and the officials and the Roman officials. And they took Paul and Silas into custody and beat them. They tore their garments, verse 22. And at the end of verse 22, they beat them with rods. Guess what? These were not sticks. These were baseball bats. They beat them to almost the point of death for the gospel they were put in an inner prison which is solitary confinement the place in the prison where the refuse and the dung would be flowing through by septic system under them they're in stocks stretched out like being crucified with their backs beaten to a pulp and guess what Paul's response was single-mindedness on Christ which creates the fruit of joy that's what happens in low circumstances and high circumstances, and these were pretty low. At about midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened, and the jailer woke. Okay, you've got them singing and praising God. They're rejoicing in the Lord always. Paul lived out what he was calling the church at Philippi to do. He was never asking them to do anything that he wasn't willing to do. He lived it out, amen? He did. In all circumstances, he was able to be fully content, filled with Christ. And he sang and made a joyful noise to the Lord. It became an evangelistic entree because the jailer said, hey, I need to commit suicide because everybody's gonna leave or has left and um, I'm going to be executed for that because I'm responsible for this. Paul said, wait, wait, don't go anywhere. Don't kill yourself. We're all still here. The witness of Paul's joy was so attractive that the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And guess what? Not only was he saved and not only did he believe, but his whole household believed. Listen, verse 32 says, Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. I don't mean to sort of grind an ax or sort of, you know, uh, disparage anyone's denomination or position on baptism, but I clearly see here in terms of the whole household being saved and baptized, that comes from hearing the word of God and believing what they heard. And then the whole household that had believed, the entire household believed, they were all baptized. And Paul sort of said, look, even though we are now set to be released because I think the, the Roman guard sort of stood up for them. He said, look, you need to mark it down that we were unduly punished as Roman citizens. And, and so he made the Roman, Roman guard and the magistrate sort of eat crow over what they had done. And he wanted to drill down the message and the conversation of the gospel through that witness of suffering. Paul had a transcendent joy from a transcendent mindset. Is that what you want? I do. Let's go back to Philippians, because I have a sermon still to preach, verses 1 and 2. That was all background. Here we go. Verses 1 and 2. It's real quick, just to get us launched. It's background, but it does fill in um, the context for these names and these servants of Christ. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. They served Christ, didn't they? Even through suffering? 
Servants is the word doulos. You heard Pastor Leo Master's sermon recently on being a slave for Christ, a doulos for Christ. He didn't say, I'm the apostle Paul at this point. No, he, he was on a more intimate friendship, best friendship level to say, no, I'm a slave of Christ. I am self-deprecating. That's point one. And then point two, he elevated them by saying, but you are saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, not people that we pray to or through, not icons, not past martyrs. No, every person that's in Christ is called a saint. It's the word hagias, which, which is where we get the word holy. It means to be set apart. You are positionally forgiven in Christ. Even though we sin in this life, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. Once you're saved, you have a declaration status on you that you are a saint. I'm a sinner, but I'm also a saint. It's a mystery how that fits together, but in the mind of God, you are called holy. Then he goes on and says, who are at Philippi, he's establishing this church as a local church that has officers, overseers, and deacons. You got pastors, elders, overseers. It's the same person. It's three different descriptors over one office. The leaders of the church, he's greeting them, and then the deacons, who are the servants. The word deacon is the same word for serve, serving, or ministering. And he's saying, look, you deacons, I'm wanting to greet you in the Lord as well. So he esteems and elevates these people at that local church. And thirdly, he affirms them, saying, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Two ideas there. Grace is the Greek greeting. It's sort of what the Greco-Roman people, Gentile people, would say to each other. They'd say, Grace to you. They want to they just give that greeting of grace. And then the Jewish greeting um, is the word in the Hebrew for peace here is shalom. And so Paul is saying, look, we're one new man in Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we're one new man. Well, no matter what your background is, in Christ we are one. So grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes through the grace of Christ at the cross of Calvary and it gives the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And by the way, don't miss the divinity of Christ at the end of verse 2. It's the divine conjunction. Paul uses this all over the place in the New Testament in his greetings. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For you grammarians, the and can be an equal sign here, right? God the Father is equal in essence to God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Equal weight there. Different members of the Trinity, I grant you. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Was never created, has always existed, and Jesus Christ is God. Amen? That's what this phrase means. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is calling us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through this letter to be in the fellowship of the gospel where we have a single focus on Christ and that single focus on Christ produces joy that is so attractive that people are compelled to want what we have, which is Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of the Bible that is so precious to us. Us, it's precious to the church. Lord, we live for you and we love you and we wanna honor you in our relationship to Christ. Lord, give us joy. Lift us out of our depressive states. Lord, let us be that attractive follower of Christ, making Christ look 
great because we have spirit-inspired joy. Lord, we love you. Give us strength and grace to grow in it, to grow in grace, to grow in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand up for your uh, time of